I don't know how much you know about college basketball or whatever. There's a guy named Joakim Noah. I went to the University of Florida and he was our center and he's a funny dude. Anyone in Cleveland, I'm sorry right now, but he's like, they asked him if he went out the night before in Cleveland. He's like, I don't know about this place, man. I just stayed in my hotel room, man. Every time I look out my window, it's, it's pretty depressing out here, man. It's bad. It's bad. So you don't, you're not going out? No. No going out in Cleveland, man. It's all factories. Do you regret anything that you said about Cleveland? Not at all. You like it? You think Cleveland's cool? I mean, I never heard anybody say I'm going to Cleveland on vacation. I mean, what's so good about Cleveland? It would have been so easy to just chill for months and months. And that, in retrospect, was like the most important part of building the core of Finch and what it is today. And if I could give people advice who are thinking about starting a company, it would be... I hate to admit this, but it's really true. That really motivated me to be like, I need to prove that this is an actual thing and that I'm not just casually maybe reading a sustainability article every day. I'm working so hard to be able to show people, like, look at what I've built. My name is Lizzie Horvitz. I'm 34 and I'm based in Denver, Colorado. Oh, were you in New York before or no? I was in New York for the past 11 years and just moved to Denver in September. Smoked that sweet stinky? Yeah, exactly. Not so much, but it's fun to be here. Yeah. Well, why'd you move from New York? A couple of reasons. I was sort of taking advantage of COVID and living in a bunch of different places, including Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I fell in love there. And my now fiance lives in Denver. And so moved to be closer to him. And then also Finch got into Techstars, which is based in Boulder. It made sense from a work and a personal standpoint, which was great. Also, my sister lives here and I've got some other family here. So it was the stars aligned. Nice. So you found love during COVID? I did. Yeah. And a fiance that happened pretty quick, huh? Yeah, it all happened pretty quickly. Did he propose the first time he saw you? Yeah, exactly. Just one and done, you know? He did? No, of course not. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, we did it for over a year before we got engaged. But, you know, in COVID, things move a lot faster. Yeah, I guess you have to spend more time with the person. So it's almost like a year, probably seems like a few years. Exactly. What is Finch? So Finch is a platform that decodes products' environmental impacts to help consumers make better purchasing decisions. We rate products based on a variety of attributes and give them a score between 1 and 10. And then when you're shopping online, you can use our browser extension to see what the product you're looking for is scored and then other alternatives in case you want to get a higher scoring product. Okay, so it's like an extension that anyone could download now if they're on their computer? Definitely. It's on Chrome. And right now it works on Amazon, where we find that most of our consumers and users are shopping. But over time, you know, it hopefully will be on every e-com site that you go on. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I think you picked the right platform to start with then, right? We hope so. Yeah, we've gotten, interestingly, some pushback where people say, you know, how can you call yourself a sustainability company when you work with Amazon? But I think we don't believe that boycotting Amazon is going to make any good at scale. That's just not a realistic outcome. And so we feel like people are going to use Amazon anyway. Why not make that experience as environmentally conscious as possible? Not that you need my advice on it, but fuck the haters, you know? I mean, people yeah. who do that stuff, you know, people find, especially now, anything to bitch about, right? I mean, I don't know, maybe you even know the environmental sustainability part, because I've talked to at least a few different people about it. But I mean, just because I'm getting packages at home, those packages used to go to, let's say, Walmart or Target, and then I'd used to go there and get them, but people don't think about that. So I feel like they at least try to be environmentally conscious or at least do a good job marketing-wise of it, but... For you to start off on the biggest platform, obviously, I think was a smart business move. But I guess it depends. No matter what you're trying to do, even if you're trying to do a good thing, like it sounds like you are, there's always going to be people who kind of try to take shots at you. Exactly. And we try to take all advice and criticism with stride. But I agree. It just we're not really going after the 5% of the population who are super green and decided not to fly anymore and to be a vegan, et cetera, et cetera. We're going after that larger 50 to 70% of the population, and all those people will continue to use Amazon. So it just makes sense. Right. And the reason I bring that up even now, I mean, there's plenty of people now who, once you get your first negative review or something like that, it's killer no matter how many good reviews you have. When you're getting that feedback, even though you want it, everyone wants feedback to improve their product. But at any point where you're like, man, is this worth doing? Or you just kind of getting depressed from negative feedback? It's a good question. Luckily, 
there are a lot of crazy people out there, right? And so a lot of our feedback has been like, I remember when we were fundraising, we did minimum $10,000 checks for friends and family and strategic investors, which is fairly standard. And someone reached out and said they wanted to invest. And I said, amazing, here's the minimum. And she was like, well, you're obviously only catering to rich people and I'm never going to use you guys again. It's like, well, (laughs) you clearly don't know that much about investing if you thought that you could give me like $5 and I could give you equity for that. Luckily, most of it has been, we've been able to sort of justify, but yeah, you know, what's the hardest part is that I think I'm my biggest critic in our team. Like we have these huge visions for what we want Finch to be in even a year or five years. And so when we come out with a product that we know needs to be improved and isn't perfect yet, that's really tough for us internally to understand that we need the consumer feedback. So we have to get something out there, but also understanding that it will only improve. So could you give us a little bit more detail in general about your company? And then we can rewind to even how you got started with it. Yeah, absolutely. So we started Finch two years ago. We were mostly just an e-com, not even e-com. We were just a website that had blogs and some anecdotal editorial information. We just launched Shark Simpson in January after raising a $1.5 million pre-seed. And with that, now we're just really trying to gain traction as much as possible in our user base and our email listserv, et cetera. We have five full-time employees. We probably have between seven and 10 part-time people who really feel like full-time employees many much of the time. And we're growing pretty quickly. We have, I think we're about to hire two more people. Okay. And I guess they're all remote? They're all remote. We kind of have these pockets and two of us are in New York, two of us are in Denver, but otherwise it's pretty spread across the country. And actually, we have one person working from the UK. And how do you make money with this extension? So we sell our data in two different ways. What's interesting about Finch is that it's really B to C to B, which meaning like we're serving the end customers, but we're getting paid by these businesses. And so the two types of data that we sell first is our proprietary algorithm. We don't sell obviously our algorithm itself, but we sell our ratings. If other companies like imagine Google shopping, if you went on Google and you typed in shampoo, you could see a little Finch score next to that or on Amazon if you didn't have the browser extension downloaded. And so we sell that data to retailers and companies who want in-house to be able to rate their products. And then the other type of data we gather from the extension, which is user behavior around sustainability. So we're able to see what consumers are switching brands on and why based on sustainability. Right now what's happening is Companies are using focus groups in a really antiquated way to say, like, would you spend an extra $2 on a sustainable deodorant? And everybody says yes, but then at checkout, it's a very different story. And so what we're actually able to do with the extension is get down to that granular level of, okay, this person looked at deodorant A, saw that it only got a 6 out of 10. They went with deodorant B that got a 9 out of 10. And this is why they were willing to switch, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's really valuable to brands, both who are already making sustainable products, who know how to market it better. And for those who still have a long way to go, they have a business case to go to their C-suite or leadership or whoever and say, like, people actually are taking this into account. Yeah. And it's a pretty slick plugin. I was doing it right as you said, I downloaded it, looked at it. It's a very simple and I like it because it just kind of pops from the right and shows you the score. So like you were saying, deodorants is one big one. Laundry detergent, it looks like you have diapers, bath towels, dental floss. So after you do the extension, I can even click on one of those categories and you tell me which ones on a scale of one to 10 is the best environmentally sustainably made product. Exactly. And I think what's been the trickiest, but also the most interesting is that we are serving a lot of different types of customers. So there are people who really just want those quick answers. They have to buy a deodorant, they really want to know what kind they should buy and they don't really care. They just want to know that they made the right decision and check that box. Others really want to dig into the details, which we find really fun. Like we have second grade teachers who have absolutely no background in sustainability who are like, how can I trust you guys? What's the background research? What type of data sources are you getting this information from, et cetera. And we love that because we have all of that in the back end, but we can't really come out with that immediately because that's going to turn those other people off. So we have to sort of have this information available in case people want it, but not start with that, if that makes sense. 
Energetic Austin here. And if you're a product manager, innovator, or a startup business person like me, you know how hard it is to be sure your next big idea will be a hit. In fact, 85% of new products fail. And a huge reason for all that failure is that it's just too hard to validate product market fit with consumers. Old style market research is too slow, too complicated, and too expensive for fast moving teams trying to build something great. But what if you could test out your product ideas with target consumers whenever you want, before you put all the time and money into development? That's what startups and Fortune 500 companies do with Feedback Loop. Get quality feedback from their target customers early and often. Feedback Loop is the test before you invent product research platform. It's got expert templates for concept testing, user discovery, prioritizing features on your roadmap, and a lot more. You can create your own test in minutes and get back quality insights from your target consumers in hours. And if you go to go.feedbackloop.com forward slash millionaire, you'll get three full tests for free. So if you want your next product or feature to be a hit, test before you invest. Build based on data, not opinion, and launch with confidence with Feedback Loop. By now, you've probably heard all about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. You might even already be investing in them. But did you know that you could invest in cryptocurrencies through your retirement account? That's right. With iTrust Capital, you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies from a crypto IRA and get all the same tax advantages as a traditional IRA. iTrust Capital allows you to invest in over two dozen of the most popular cryptocurrencies. And unlike the stock market, you can buy and sell 24 hours a day. The iTrust Capital platform is easy to use and it only takes a few minutes to create your own account. Setting up an IRA is free and iTrust fees are low. It's time to start taking control of your financial future. With iTrust Capital, you can get all the tax benefits of a retirement account while investing in crypto. Visit itrust.capital forward slash ESI and start investing today. That's itrust.capital forward slash ESI. Taxes and conditions may apply. Fees apply. Cryptocurrencies are a speculative investment with risk of loss. iTrust Capital Incorporated does not provide legal investment or tax advice. Consult with a qualified legal investment or tax professional. Yeah, so you try to keep it simple, and then if they want to dive into details, they can, you're saying? Exactly. Okay, yeah, it makes sense. And then how do you find out exactly like how well a deodorant's made sustainably-wise and give it that score? I know you said it's an algorithm, but is there a simple way for you? Because even if, if they're like private companies and stuff, I'm like, how do you know what they're using, and how do I know the score's legit? It's a really good question. So right now, just to cover the landscape overall, we have what's called a life cycle analysis, where... A company can hire a consulting firm or another company to do this assessment where essentially they look at this product on a deep level all the way through like how the resources were extracted from the ground all the way to how it's disposed. And these companies actually literally go to the manufacturing floor. They see how this work is being done, et cetera, et cetera. That is really costly and it takes a really long time. And so while that's as detailed as you can get, we would never claim to be at that level of knowledge, we're not going to be on the manufacturing floors of 200 different brands. But the other alternative is just slapping on any type of term that says, you know, this is eco-friendly or this was made with less water or anything like that. And so Finch is kind of taking that happy medium of we're not going to go into these manufacturing centers, but we can get to a better outcome with informed information. And so The way that we do the process is 10% manual, 90% automated. So that 10% is really just looking at a product category overall, like shampoo. And we'll say, okay, after reading these peer-reviewed articles and academic papers, et cetera, we find out that 20% of the footprint of shampoo is in its packaging and 80% is in the ingredients used. I'm simplifying, obviously. And once we have that, then we can go on the public domain and just scrape any information we can get. Honestly, yes, you can get a little bit more from public companies who have to disclose this information, but private companies also have to show at least a bare minimum, right, of country of origin or where this was manufactured or ingredients used. And we take all of that information and can make our best guesses or not even guess that 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 doesn't sound right, but we're making informed decisions based on the information that's available. And what's really fun is that 
it's easy for us because if companies are going above and beyond from an environmental standpoint, they're talking about it somewhere. You know, there aren't companies that are using organic cotton or getting certified in B Corp and not publicizing that. And so what we're finding is it's easy to separate the good from the bad because the good ones will promote all the work that they're doing. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking in my head, it's just like, man, it seems like a lot of work, especially all the scraping and everything you have to do for each individual product. I mean, I don't even know if you can say how long or how much time it takes even to look at a product and try to figure that out. Yeah, I actually, I feel like I trailed off on the process. The 10% manual is just those like that overall, okay, shampoo is 80% ingredients, 20% packaging. And then 90% is automated where we have a machine learning model that we put in our weights into that. And then it scrapes and can pull out all of those scores automatically. So the beauty of that is as we incorporate new attributes, as new products come to market, the back end changes, but then all of the scores will just change dynamically based on the new information that we've gathered with our model. We're never going through like every product individually. That would not be sustainable. We've rated 250,000 products at this point, but rating 50 products versus 500 is not any more manpower. Okay. It's just the initial thing that you're trying to figure out in the beginning. And then after you figure that out, then you can scrape it and knows what to do. You're saying. Exactly. Yep. How about a couple of examples? Because I'm just thinking of one at the top of my head. I'm sure you have plenty. But like if we're thinking soap, I'm just thinking, okay, if I got a men's body wash in a plastic bottle versus like a soap bar, I imagine the soap bar would be rated way higher than a men's body wash in a plastic bottle because obviously not reusing plastic and all that's not a good thing. Am I thinking about that right on how your scoring kind of work? Okay. Yes, 100%. And then what we're finding also interestingly is that the companies that are using bars instead of bottles, for example, also tend to use, I'm generalizing here, but they use better ingredients, they have better shipping practices, etc. And so they're better for a lot of reasons. But the most obvious one is yes, they're decreasing their plastic quite a bit. Totally, right? I mean, like, especially if I have a bar, it seems like it'd barely be anything else if they had like recycled paper or something that they're putting it in, right? Versus like the plastic bottle. It's already like a non-starter on your scale as far as like it's going to only get so high because you're starting with something that is only going to be really used once. Exactly. So what we do is we normalize all of our scores to see what the mix is. Because there are a lot of shampoo bars out there, there's a pretty clear spread across the board. But what happens in places like in categories like shampoo, where shampoo bars are actually like a pretty new thing where there aren't that many brands doing them. So it's not a good user experience if we say the only way you're going to do well is get, you know, buy a shampoo bar because that's the only thing that's over a nine. We have to lift some of those other plastic products up so that there's a wider spread. So basically our scores are not an absolute, this is how good it is. It's this is how good it is relative to everything that's out on the market right now, if that makes sense. Yeah. So even the plastic ones that I just said, I mean, that still could be a nine if it's compared to if it used recycled plastic versus new plastic, like you wouldn't put them in the same category, even though they kind of are, but not really, you're saying? Yeah, we would put them in the same category, but depending on how many other options there are, particularly on Amazon right now, it's not like if you use a plastic bottle, you're, you're a one. There's no way you can get over a seven, right? <laughs> right yeah. okay. Because if you think about like detergent, for instance, that's like a very chemical intensive, can be kind of a toxic industry. And there are some players like I love Drops and a couple of other companies that are disrupting that, but they're not there yet. And if we were doing an absolute score, we would probably rate all detergents like under a five, in which case. Are we talking about dishwasher or laundry? Kind of both, actually. I was thinking of laundry, but dishwashing applies here too. If you imagine as a shopper, you're going on and you're using our extension, you're like, I need dishwashing detergent and all of these are a five. That's a horrible user experience. So we need to be able to encourage people to buy the best possible thing that's out there. Makes sense. Well, is there any other like shocks that you had that might be interesting to anyone who's listening as far as after you started doing these scores that you're like, wow, I didn't think there'd be this much of discrepancy or anything like that. Because yeah, I guess you even say in the laundry detergent, I didn't know. Generally speaking, I guess that it's bad for the environment. I think beyond individual scores, what's been most shocking to us is digging into our different footprints. And I'll explain what I'm talking about, which is like, when you compare a metal straw versus a plastic straw, 
nine out of 10 people, and this was me nine months ago, would be like, oh, metal straw is always better, right? We don't knock turtles with plastic straws in their noses, setting up in the ocean, et cetera, et cetera. So from a plastic waste standpoint or from a waste standpoint in general, absolutely. Plastic straws are worse. There's a one in seven chance that a plastic straw will end up in the ocean. But when you look at a carbon from a carbon perspective or climate overall, making a metal straw is actually pretty carbon intensive. You're using heavy machinery, using a lot of energy. And so if you're buying a metal straw, you need to use that straw, you know, something like a hundred times to make it worthwhile. Whereas if you're going to get coffee one time and you take a plastic straw, that's the better option than taking a metal straw that you're only going to use once. So it's sort of this trade-off. Yeah. Do you know how many times you use a metal straw versus the plastic straw? Like for it to equal? You have to use a metal straw. I think it's actually 300 times. So like every day for almost a year before you can make up its sort of carbon input. What it goes back to is really finding the energy that's used to create all this stuff. I guess the better the energy is, since you just said that, you know, I wasn't really even thinking about that, but I've kind of discussed it before kind of in other interviews, but the cleaner that the actual energy is and the easier, the less carbon footprint it has, then overall it'd make everything much easier, I guess, right? Exactly. We just did some studies on electric vehicles versus regular cars. And again, it's like this, every answer, you know, when I was in grad school, every professor would say it depends to the question because it really does depend on so many different factors. But overall, if you think about an electric car in West Virginia that's run on coal, you actually should probably get a gas-powered car in West Virginia. If you're in California, an electric car makes significant more sense. So it's this balance as communicators of this information to not confuse people and to nitpick, right? Like it's okay to generally say, yes, electric cars are better. And I fully believe that. But there are situations where what we've been taught for the past couple of decades doesn't actually always pan out. The other one that I use sometimes is if you don't have an Energy Star washing machine or like a really energy efficient washing machine, it's often better to use paper towels than it is to use dish towels and then wash them. And that obviously depends on how often you're washing them and where you live geographically, what the water table looks like, etc. But it's not so cut and dry. So we find our responsibility to sort of tell people where those nuances are and do the hard work so that they don't have to. Yeah, maybe we can dive into some more examples like that too. But I think it sounds like you love my mom because I've said this before too. I was raised where they had plenty of money. We didn't have to worry about it, but my mom's very cheap. This is how cheap she was. She would even take paper towels and reuse paper towels. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> I know. I figured you'd like her. <laughs> that is commitment. Yeah. She's like, sit them up and drive up. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm like, okay. Different generation, right? We saw that with, I guess, like World War II boomers. Yeah, because she's raised a, a family of farmers, like her mom and dad. So it's like, you know, you see that and that, yeah, try to pinch every penny, right? So I just like the conversation and the way to think that, because this is like one more step of critical thinking versus, like you said, just doing electric versus gas powered car. Depends on where you are. If you're where somewhere all it's all cold plants, it's like, it doesn't really make sense. And probably you're not be able to get a charge other than being at home, right? So like you're saying, the deodorant, the laundry detergent, I'm just kind of looking at your website, try to See if there's any other things. Because, I mean, you even have like bath towels on here. That's one thing we haven't described. Do you have an example of that? Yeah, bath towels are, it's funny. We rated sheets and mattresses and bath towels, which go kind of against the general industries that we had rated. But my chief of staff, Jane, came from a sheets company prior and was really knowledgeable about this space. And so we decided to rate them. Towels really are just dependent on the materials and nothing else. Like they're all pretty much manufactured in a similar place. There's not a ton of nuance, but the big difference is basically like organic cotton versus regular or conventional rather, and then how long they last. So how often you should be washing them. It's a lot, you know, once you're over the ingredient and, and actually make a purchase, just making sure they last as long as possible is the most important factor. So the higher quality is worth Overall, does it seem like it's worth buying? If, I guess from an environmental standpoint, we're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. And they last longer. And then I don't think you have to wash them as much. So, you know, we wash our towels every one to two weeks. What type of towels? I don't even know our specific brand, but just like organic cotton or something. Yeah. I guess I was just looking at materials. So you're saying like organic cotton is kind of differentiator yeah. from regular cotton. Is that what I'm... Exactly. And then you want something that's ideally only one material. So any of the blends with like 
I don't know if polyester, polyester and towels, but like other materials that are mixed with cotton are more difficult to recycle and to have a second life. And so you want the pure organic cotton is sort of the best option. Okay. Thank you for the insights. Yeah, I think this is pretty interesting. Again, I guess you're saying that they can download the Chrome plugin and then choosefinch.com is your website if, if they want to dive in more details of the products and anything else. Yeah, absolutely. They can go to our website, download our extension. And then the other thing that we always love to tell people is we're still small enough that we respond to these individual emails. Ideally, most of them are not the angry ones I was talking about in the beginning of the podcast. But you know, people email us all the time asking specific questions and I answer those directly. And so we would encourage people just to start chatting with us and giving us feedback on on what they want to see. What's the email? It's hey at choosefinch.com. And uh, are you active on any of the socials too? Yes, we are on Instagram. We're at choosefinch and then on Twitter at choosefinch. Usually I wait till the end. Of, you can give out your personal email or maybe same one again. But if anyone's listening to podcasts, what I end up doing is I just go ahead and follow them real quick. That way I'll see them later on. So hopefully people are doing that or writing you a beautiful email right now. Let's hope so. So I guess, do you want to go ahead and rewind to how you got started in entrepreneurship or any other job before that? And we'll take it year by year on how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. So I fell in love with sustainability and climate change mitigation when I was 16. It was a really young age to do that, particularly in 2004, when obviously people were talking about climate change, but definitely not to the extent that it is discussed today or known about. And I had this really fantastic experience where I saw a way to live on wind and solar and rainwater, etc. That was pretty beautiful. And so I, I really wanted to dedicate my life to helping more people live like that and mitigating their footprint. So went to get my MBA and my master's in environmental management about 10 years after that, and just focused on what large companies can do to reduce their footprint. I, it's interesting to note, I think, or important to note, I never had any interest in starting my own company or being an entrepreneur. That just, it wasn't that I was against it. It just wasn't something that ever crossed my mind, to be quite honest. But I worked at Unilever for three years, and it just didn't end up being the ideal job that I thought it was going to be or the ideal company to work for, for a variety of reasons, most of them not having to do with Unilever specifically. It was just bad timing and bad luck without mentors to help me out, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was there that I got a call from a friend's older brother who said, you know, I'm starting this company in Southeast Asia. Come join me. He was, I think, like five or six months in. And so I moved to Southeast Asia for a bit of time and I became chief operating officer of that company. Well, what year and what company? This was 2018, and it's called Muse. They displace single-use plastics from the to-go industry. So actually, Starbucks just came out recently with an announcement saying that they were phasing out single-use plastics, and this company is actually working with Starbucks in Singapore, which is really exciting. So I was chief operating officer of that. I really... My CEO and I had a great relationship where I he just gave me a ton of autonomy to run the company in many ways. And so learned a lot about how to grow a company, how to manage people, just these skills that I had not learned before because it wasn't something that I ever focused on. Okay. And you were there for about a year? I was there for a little over a year. Yep. And real quick, because now we're almost to present day, I just wanted to say where you went to school and then where you got your MBA because you're kind of brushed over that. So I got to prove to everybody you're smart. Yeah. I went to Middlebury undergrad. Where's Middlebury College? It's in Vermont. It's a really small school in Vermont. And they have a specialty in, they're really known for their language program, which I did not take part in because I'm a horrible language person. speaker of different languages. Yeah, me too. But they also specialize in environmental studies. And what they do is because the major is so big, you have to focus in something even within environmental studies. So I focused in environmental history, which really, I think, set me up to be in this space beautifully because you have to understand where you came from to figure out how to move forward. I think a lot of people are suggesting things today that the government do or that companies do that had been done and tried in different times. And I think unless you have that understanding of history and really how the environmental movement started, it makes it a lot easier to make informed decisions moving forward. So that was a really good experience. And then I went to the nonprofit industry because after I graduated from Middlebury, I thought... And you graduated 2010. 2010. Sorry, I'm just trying to make sure that everyone knows what 
that's the 10 years or almost eight years of difference. So I'm just trying to keep the timeline so everyone knows where you are in there. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then I was in the nonprofit world in 2010. I just loved the job that I had. It was at the Natural Resources Defense Council. It was the most spoiled place to start a job because you're just working with so many brilliant, amazing people. But I realized that my bosses had been working on things that they had like been continuing to work on since like the 1980s. So that was at that point, you know, 20 years, 30 years, actually. And we were known for at NRDC suing companies and governments that were polluting the planet. I can't speak highly enough of them. They're doing amazing work. It was more fun for me to be on the proactive side instead of the reactive side. So if I had the choice of being within Walmart and making decisions from day one that makes sense for the environment, as opposed to suing them after they've already done something, I would prefer the former. And so I really wanted to understand how businesses worked. I had no experience of that at Middlebury. So I applied to business school with a joint degree in environmental management at Yale and started that in 2013. And so that was a three-year program where I really dug into sort of how large companies can mitigate their footprint. And that's when I then went to Unilever. Okay. But yeah, before we talked about Unilever, I know you quickly kind of talked about that, but Yale, was it everything you thought it would be? I think it was more, honestly. Just like this podcast interview? Exactly. I have so many thoughts about grad school in general. I think I wanted to go to Yale because I applied to Michigan and I applied to Duke as well. And just I think since college, I had this dream of going to like one of the oldest forestry schools in the country where, you know, Gifford Pinchot was and all these amazing different people. And to be at a place, I mean, Middlebury is a great school, but it's a tiny school without, you know, a lot of graduate schools or anything like that. And to be among, you know, the Yale Law School and the Drama School and all these different areas was really, really special. So that just like, as an overview was really, really fun for me. I also love New Haven. It gets a really bad reputation, but I loved living there for three years. But then the community of people I learned so much from and had, you know, there's still some of my very closest friends. And I had the pleasure of being at two different schools at the same time with 60 other people who were also within those two schools. And so you really get a wide span of education and experience and culture between the forestry school and the business school, which as you can imagine, are sometimes attracting to very different types of people. What types of people? <laughs> well, you know, the business school and it's actually these stereotypes are less than people think, but they do still exist. You know, the business school is much more like I want to make that money, make money, be successful, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And then the forestry school is like, let's go out and be one with nature, right? And so... Let's do mushrooms. Yeah, exactly. So it was really fun to... And again, like the funny part of Yale specifically, I think Michigan and Duke might be less like this, but the people that go to Yale Business School are not the types of people that go to Harvard and Stanford. It's like a totally different type of person who actually cares a lot about, you know, nonprofit management is what Yale specializes in and impact investing and all these other things. And so... It's not as drastic as I just made it seem, but it still is. It was there and it was really fun to sort of like dip my toes into both of them. Yeah, that sounds cool. I think we can all envision it. And like you're saying New Haven gets a bad rap. Why does it get a bad rap? I honestly don't know. I think it's historically been a pretty dangerous place. I mean, it actually is. Like I've lived in a lot of really big cities and New Haven was the only place that I actually felt like pretty unsafe. But amazing restaurants, bars. It's two hours from New York City if you want your big city fix. But I don't know. I think it's also it's improved quite a bit since I think it's only gotten like safer and more built up since the 80s. And so I think now, you know, it probably shouldn't have that reputation anymore. A lot of people start a business and they think they own their own brand, yet they don't. If you don't have a trademark, you could get sued for infringement. Imagine spending all that money on building someone else's brand, then getting sued by them for infringement. Trademark Factory is the only company in the entire world that has a true 100% money back guarantee and one flat fee that handles everything from start to finish with unlimited legal team hours. And as an entrepreneur, you have enough on your plate already. Growing and operating your business without having to add the complicated legal process of getting a registered trademark. So, Trademark Factory makes it easy for you by taking that off your plate and doing the hard work for you. 
Their flat fee covers everything from start to finish with a flat fee, unlimited legal team hours, and backed by their money back guarantee. Let them do the legal work so you can focus your attention where it's needed most, your business. They'll get the job done or your money back. And all you have to do is wait for your trademark certificate in the mail. That's it. So to request a free consultation call with one of Trademark Factory's strategic advisors, use the following link, tmf.rocks forward slash millionaire. That's tmf.rocks forward slash millionaire. And so you did that for three years and did that full time? I did that full time. Yep. Yeah, the MBA and the environment. So was it like basically two different degrees? Like were a lot of students doing the same thing you were or were you just happened to be a go-getter and get both at the same time? Like I was just curious because like you said, there are two different totally programs, it seems like. Yeah, it's really common. There were 60 of us. So really 20 per class were getting this joint degree. So you have a really good community and basically depending on what school you start with, you'll do one full year of one school, one full year of the other school, and then your third year is kind of half and half. Okay. And then out of there, you go straight to Unilever, and where is that located? That was in Shelton, Connecticut, which, talk about a rough place to live. (laughs) That was an interesting time. It was in like a corporate park in Shelton, which is probably 45 minutes from Stamford, 45 minutes from New Haven, so kind of in the middle of nowhere. And I worked on their supply chain team. I wanted to get my foot in the door at Unilever. I was not as interested in what that role was. I just knew that once I was in, then it would be a lot easier for me to sort of get into the sustainability work that I knew I really wanted to do. So what position did you go in as? I went in as a distribution services analyst, which was actually a college level role. So my salary was probably one of the lower, aside from those who were like going into the nonprofit space. And my responsibilities were, I don't know if I used any of those skills, like those day-to-day skills that I learned in business school in that first role. It was kind of miserable in a lot of ways. I wasn't like having a good culture fit with a lot of people that I worked with. People also, you know, supply chain is like a real expert space. And people spend four years at Penn State or Rutgers and come out and are like these brilliant supply chain people. I never had any of that. I never took any supply chain classes at Yale per se. And so it wasn't a good fit, but I learned so much and I would never have been able to get into the sustainability space from outside otherwise. And so basically on day one, I was like, okay, I'm going to get my day job done faster than everybody else and or not faster than everybody else, but faster than my boss thinks it will take me. And then I'm going to spend that extra time like networking with other people throughout the company. Yeah, seems like it makes sense. But I'll say you even coming out, I guess it's smart to try to at least get in the company, right? So someone can use that. And even if it's a role that you don't like, positive thing too is you learn what you really don't like or the types of people or situations like working situations that you, you know, because you might never know. Because like one of my first bosses was a terrible boss. Luckily, I kind of figured out, I'm like, well, I'm glad I had him. Even at the time, I think I kind of thought it, but especially afterwards, you can think like, at least I don't have to work with that person again or anything like that. So there are certain important things that you can learn. So if anyone's in that situation as well now, just remember that you don't want to be treat people the same way or, you know, if you don't like a certain way that if you start your own company, hopefully you can do something a little different. I feel so strongly about that. I think it's such a good point that I always try to tell people who are looking for jobs in college or graduate school is that, you know, you're not going to get that perfect job even like one or two jobs after you graduate, whether it's undergrad or graduate school. So you might as well think about what job you want in three to five years and what's going to get you there. And it's not always going to be pretty or fun or enjoyable, but it's a real humbling experience too. to, you know, I was feeling pretty good about myself coming out of a Yale joint degree program. And then I'm put into this supply chain job and I'm like, oh my gosh, all these people who just graduated from college are so much better at this than I am. And it's never fun in the moment, but I guarantee that I would not have the knowledge base that I do now had I not had that year and a half in supply chain. And so did the networking work at Unilever? Were you eventually able to move up to a different position that you wanted? It did. So I basically did some side projects for them. And then a year and a half later, when a job became available on the sustainability team, 
I was one of the first people that they looked at internally because I had already sort of formed this relationship with them. So I think I can't speak enough about that where, you know, there are only so many massive companies to work for. And if you're lucky enough to work for one of them, you have to meet as many people as you can, because otherwise it's just having like, you know, a Unilever email address. You can email anybody at that company and chat with them, pick their brain, get coffee with them. And I'm sure not every company is like this. Unilever was particularly awesome at that, where they had this culture of you should network and meet a whole bunch of people. But that really helped me find my way. I think it was too that you were proactive. I mean, I imagine that a lot of people weren't. So again, no one's going to tell you. I mean, if they tell you, that's a good thing, but no one usually ends up doing it. You know, and that's what differentiates people who are moving up versus complaining and not doing anything. You got to take advantage of that. So smart to take advantage of that if you're in a big company now and can do the same type of thing. So you worked in the sustainable part for like another year or so? Another year and a half. Okay. So you're a total at Unilever, like two and a half, three years? Exactly. Okay. And then you just got tired of it still. And you're like, hey, your friend said, come move to Southeast Asia and help me start this company. Yeah. It just, I was waiting for that time to click at Unilever where I was getting out of bed, being excited to go into work and loved the work that I was doing and the people that I was working with, et cetera. And it just like never really panned out. And I tried so hard for two and a half years. And finally, I remember, I think it was probably my parents who were like, you can't spend like six years trying at the same company if it's just not working. And again, I can't stress this enough. It's probably not specific to anything that Unilever did poorly. It was just bad timing and, and an overall negative experience. And so... Oh, yeah, real quick. Sorry. I'm not trying to cut off too much. I feel like I am. Sorry if you feel that way. But I was just going to say that did you ever have that pep in your step to like wake up and go? Because I know like sometimes I feel like sometimes at least if you have it, you might be doing the same things. I think all of us go into those ups and downs of getting excited for work or whatever. But you're saying you like never had the excitement of going to work? No, it's a good question. Aside from Unilever, I think I've had that every place that I've worked like NRDC, Muse, now Finch, like my homeostasis, I'm really lucky is on the higher level in terms of energy, I'm just like a generally pretty happy person. And I really like what I do. And so it was out of character for me to spend three years being like, Oh, maybe if I do this, I'll get another job here. And it'll be better. You can't like go through your career just like waiting for the next thing. Yeah, again, you being proactive, and I guess kind of realizing that did you maybe just realize that afterwards, after you left, like maybe you weren't 100% happy, but then once you started getting excited for these other jobs that you eventually got to that we haven't started talking about yet, that's when you looked back and you're like, hey, you know, that even proves that I wasn't as happy when I'm excited to wake up for this other stuff. I think I really realized it in the moment, to be honest. I think a big part of it, part of what I was saying before is that I don't think that my skill set was appreciated and utilized to its fullest extent. Unilever is a really hierarchical, bureaucratic place. And I remember, you know, I'd ask to be put on certain projects like, oh my gosh, I did a project like this in grad school. Let me help. And people would say, oh, no, 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 you're not suited to do that. You're not well positioned to do that. You know, I had a manager who was going on maternity leave and she said, we'll have to hire someone who can replace me. And I thought, well, I can do it. We were like three years apart. It wasn't like she was this 50-year-old woman who had a ton of experience. And she's like, oh, well, no, you've only been here for X amount of time. You can't be a manager. You're an associate manager. It's all this BS, excuse my language, that's like, it doesn't matter. Like, I just came from... And it, like, there are plenty of things that I want to be careful about how I come off. There are a lot of things that I'm really bad at and am not an expert in. Sustainability at a large company was literally what I dedicated the previous three years to. So for Unilever to not be like appreciating that was like, well, then I'm going to go somewhere else where people do. And so in the moment, it definitely was like, this is not worth my time. You guys are treating me like I have no skill set and I can't be helpful to you. Nice. There's that passion. Yeah, exactly. And then so I guess you were discussing that with a friend and you said Southeast Asia, but I didn't say specifically. So where did you end up moving from? You know, I think I'm trying to think of the timing. I left in March. It was probably at some point in December, January. I'm always like my birthday is in January. And so every beginning of the year, I start thinking about taking reflection of the past year and how I want the next year to look at. And I was just thinking like, this did not work. I don't think working at another huge company is going to be a vastly different experience. So kind of back to the drawing board, I'm like, what is out there? Do I go back to the nonprofit? Do I 
I mean, I had a bunch of different ideas. And yeah, my friend Carrie said, my older brother's doing this cool thing. We had been in touch before because he also went to Middlebury. He was an environmental studies major. You should talk to him. And actually, you know what else happened is he reached out to me at Unilever because he thought that Unilever might be able to help. That's what happened. I'm forgetting now. He reached out and he said, you know, we're starting this company. We think Unilever would be a good partner. Could you help us sort of navigate Unilever? A couple of weeks went by and I finally said, I'm not making progress here. Again, it's like super bureaucratic. I don't, I can't figure it out, but I'm interested in coming to work for you. Is there a spot for me? And so he was based in Bali, but we had, there were sort of Muse outposts in Singapore and Hong Kong. And so I went for, I think, two months to Bali, Singapore and Hong Kong and just sort of like split time between all of those places got my bearings, worked with the team on the ground, which is amazing. And then I worked remotely from New York, which I would not recommend to anybody waking up at one in the morning for a weekly call was not something that I miss. And then I moved back there in the fall. I lived mostly in Singapore, which if anybody has a chance to go, it's the most fantastic city I think I've ever been to. I really loved living there. And then, yeah, so I was there for a little over a year, I think. Did you say your brother was part of that company too? It was my friend's brother. Oh, your friend's brother. Okay. That's the only part that I was making sure about. Okay. And so what were you doing there? And it's called M-U-U-S-E as a company, in case anyone's wondering. It's called M-U-U-S-E. Yep. I came on as, I think I was a sales and partnerships lead. It was such early stage that titles didn't really matter. And he was just like, just come on and we'll figure out what we want you to do. Which is the exact opposite of Unilever, right? Exactly. So that was actually really refreshing. So I was doing sales and partnerships for the first two months. And then a crazy thing happened where one of the co-founders left and moved on to another exciting job. And he offered me the chief operating officer role that she had previously had. And so very quickly moved into that space and really trial by fire, figuring out what does the chief operating officer even do? What does this mean for a small company, et cetera, et cetera. So if you look at the juxtaposition, which I think is really, really interesting, I spent three years at Unilever trying to convince people around me that I actually knew what I was doing. And nobody, nobody believed me or wanted my advice. They were like, keep your head down, get your work done. We don't want any more than that. And then I switched to fit to Muse, excuse me, which is like, I didn't know the first thing about how to manage people or payroll or the millions of things that come with a startup. And Brian just entrusted me with that and sort of not to be cheesy, but like gave me the wings to fly. And I figured it out and realized that actually it was a skill set that I loved and could grow in. But what exactly was Muse? Can, I mean, can you give me a sport specifically? I'm on their website, but I was just trying to make it easy for everyone to understand exactly what they did. So they were basically trying to figure out a reusable system for to-go coffee. So our goal, and I think it's still their goal, is that when you walk into Starbucks and you get a latte, instead of giving you a plastic cup or a you know styrofoam cup, you get a metal one, sort of like a Yeti or a really nice metal cup that you can take with you on the go. You can take it to work or home or whatever. And on the way, or maybe at your office, there will be a drop-off station where you can drop that cup when you're finished. Our company would clean and sanitize it and then bring it back to Starbucks. So you're not throwing anything away and it's clean for somebody else to use. And so the goal of that was that to make to-go sort of sustainable, which, you know, I think now a lot of other companies are trying to do and figure out. It's a tough business to be in, but I think, I really think it's like the wave of the future is reusability over like strengthening recyclability and everything else. I think the shared economy is something that is still relatively untapped. It's kind of like city bike in New York, right? Where you take a bike, you take it wherever you want, and then you drop it and someone else grabs it. Same idea with to-go coffee. Makes sense. So why'd you leave after a year? COVID. It was March. It was literally exactly two years ago. I had come home from Singapore. I was not planning on moving across the world in a pandemic. But it was also not realistic for me to continue doing work on the other side of the country, on the other side of the world. And also, you know, there were other, Brian and I had a great relationship, but he had given me so much power that it became a little bit dangerous because the two of us 
would butt heads quite a bit. And at the end of the day, it's his company. He's the founder. And so I was getting increasingly frustrated about the decisions that he was making that I wouldn't necessarily have made in the same way. So it just felt like a good time to explore other options. And while I was at Unilever, what I don't think I mentioned was I had started this newsletter called The Green Lizard, which was basically a way to distill sustainability information in an accessible but like data-based way. I did that just for fun. I was writing like a monthly article. And as Muse was winding down, I started thinking about how I can scale up this newsletter and use my skills from Muse given working at a startup, et cetera. And that's really how Finch came to be in March, 2020. Did you leave Muse literally just a couple months before that? No. So I left Muse. I stayed on Muse for maybe two or three more months and left in, I think, June. Of 2019? No, of 2020. So it was just an overlap where I started Finch and- Okay, it was overlap versus the year before. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, that's what I was trying to see if there was time in between or if you had already, if I got the year right there. So as you're doing that, did they realize that too at Muse or no, that you're going to start your own company? I think they did. Yeah. And they were, you know, obviously, as you can imagine, starting a company in Bali, it's a different situation where the lines between personal and professional are, you know, you're all like living together on this island. And it's like, we talked about everything and we were really, really close. And I was really honest about what I was feeling. And so when I left, I don't think it came as a surprise to anybody because we had spent so much time together and it just made sense. But I mean, it does make sense also too, like you said, if you're across the world and there's already tension, it's just not going to work out. But when you decided to do Finch, obviously something different. So how were you able to do that? Because I know you talked about the green lizard, or I don't know if that had any planned anything, but you know, going from basically kind of a startup in Bali to starting your own company in New York. COVID was so bad for so many reasons. It was so fantastic for starting a company. And if I could give people advice who are thinking about starting a company, it would be like, go back in time and start it in the beginning of a pandemic. Because if you imagine, like, I wanted to get everybody's advice. I wanted to know what everybody thought about this idea. And so I was thinking to back up the transition between Muse and Finch, I was like, I have this green lizard thing. I want to make it come alive a little bit more. It wasn't that moment that people talk about, you know, in the shower, like a light bulb moment that came off. It was sort of an ongoing dinner every single night with my sister and brother-in-law and parents on what this might look like. And after a couple of weeks of that, I then started emailing people saying, can we chat for 30 minutes about this idea? And everybody was like, yes, I want to talk to you. Not because this idea is so cool, but because I'm so bored at home with my family that I want like nobody's doing anything, right? So all people had was time at that moment. And I really took advantage of that. And I had, oh my gosh, hundreds of conversations with people to really start solidifying this idea. And so that probably took me to June, where I really started, you know, I like got it as a certified incorporation and hired a lawyer, hired an accountant, I like made it real, and then went from there. But when you move back to New York City from you know, when you were doing Muse and you were in Singapore and whatnot, New York City's kind of pricey too, right? So, I mean, did you have money saved up from these jobs before? Because I just imagine from outside point of view, I'd imagine you weren't making a lot of money at Muse just because if it's kind of more of a startup versus, you know, at Unilever, if you will. Totally. It's a really important question. I actually didn't really move back to New York until October. So I was living at home with my parents from March from the beginning of COVID all the way through, I think, October or November. And where was home? Home was mostly Massachusetts. I grew up in Cleveland, but my parents are now spending more more and more of their time in Massachusetts. So I was sort of between those two places. Oh, so they have two homes? They have one in Cleveland and then where's the other one in Massachusetts? Yeah, in Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard? Okay, nice. Yeah, it's an island off of Massachusetts, like near Cape Cod. That sounds nice. It was really nice. It was a really nice free place to stay for a long time. Isn't Martha's Vineyard like, a, I feel like, are they clothing brand or am I making this up? I don't know. But I don't know. I've definitely heard of it. It's super nice, right? Yeah. There's a black dog brand that you might have seen that started on Martha's Vineyard. But we've been going there since I was born. I mean, I've spent a lot more time there than I do Cleveland. So that really feels like home to me these days. Yeah, I would too, looking at it. <laughs> you have the choice? <laughs> well, it's funny. I just heard. I don't know how much you know about college basketball or whatever. There's a guy named Joe Kim Noah. I went to the University of Florida and he was our center and he's a funny dude. 
anyone in Cleveland, I'm sorry right now, but he's like, they ask him if he went out the night before in Cleveland. He's like, dude, no one goes out in Cleveland. He's like, it's just factories. That's amazing. He's yeah. like, no one says, I'm going to go on vacation and I'm going to Cleveland. <laughs> it's just like I know. I actually, I have to defend Cleveland a little bit because it is an awesome city. And most people, not all, but most people who hate on Cleveland have not spent a lot of time there. And the people who live there and who, people love it. And when you go, if you know the right restaurants to go to and the scenes, it's fantastic. Like there's so much, I think it's making a real resurgence. I'm bullish on Cleveland, but yeah, between the two. Martha's Vineyard by the beach was pretty spectacular. But if you invite me to go to one of two places with you and give me the option, <laughs> I'm going picking you up and going to Martha's Vineyard instead. Exactly. That helped a lot because I was, you know, oh my gosh, I reverted back to like 17 years old. My parents were amazing. I didn't pay for groceries or rent or anything for however many months. That was fantastic. Real quick before we keep going about, so are your parents super wealthy? They're successful. Yeah. I wouldn't say they're super wealthy. What'd they do? My dad's a lawyer. He comes from a family business in the newspaper business, actually. Okay. And then your mom? And my mom's a photographer. Nice. Because I've seen Martha's Vineyard, the Obamas have their estate there. You buy them? Yeah, the Obamas have their estate there. We're not that close to them. No, the vineyard is actually, it's a lot bigger than people think. So it's pretty diverse in land and geography and types of people that go there. It's a lot of artists. It actually was, I don't know if you know this, but it was the first historically black resort town. It was forever a place where black people were welcomed on vacation. And so there's a massive African-American population there, which is a fun thing to experience. Yeah. And where are you located? My company is in Singapore, but I live in uh, Malaysia right now. Cool. Yeah. So why did you decide to become a member? You know, it was really uh, by chance that I stumbled upon your podcast. Yours just popped up. I said, okay, let me just try. And I like your interview style. I thought you asked good questions and I learned a lot. It was quite in-depth. So you mentioned about Patreon that I can get certain benefits. So when I looked into it, I said, okay, why not? I have really honestly already spent a lot of money that I didn't get any return from. I said, why not? I mean, in this journey, there's a lot of things that I spend money on, my, the courses I bought, whatever. I said, why not? I just be a member and I get to speak to you and perhaps I can learn by having a one-on-one -on -one with you. Have you had a chance to listen to any of the past group calls or anything like that yet? Yeah, I've listened to a couple of them. Even if somebody had a business that was completely unrelated to anything I was doing, they were still throwing in invaluable nuggets of information just constantly. So I've been listening and, you know, I'd like to start getting in on some of the group calls. I'd like to start really engaging with other people in the community and just learning and devouring as much as I can. Yeah, no, it's cool. Yeah, I'd see that from one of these pictures or whatever. And again, it's like, especially when I came out of college, I had to do the same thing. I felt like a loser, like having to be at home because I couldn't find a job or whatever. But especially at this time during COVID, your parents were loving it and you got to take advantage of what you have too, right? So you probably didn't obviously know how the business was going to go that if you're starting your first business and you have the opportunity to spend time with them and also go between Cleveland and probably 95% of the time in Martha's Vineyard, I would take that opportunity as well. Exactly. Yep. And so I wasn't really spending that much money on myself. I didn't really need a big salary to sustain, you know, living at home and eating what my mom cooked that night. But in terms of starting the company, I did have some startup money that I had saved aside from Unilever. And I had an uncle that died that left me some money. And so I used some of that to really kickstart Finch. I had a lot of people helping me out in return for equity, which was great. That was something that I was more than happy to give out. And then cash, I just had to be very obviously cognizant of how I was spending that only to take us to our pre-seed fundraising round, which was successful. And so made that a lot easier. But I always say like entrepreneurship, this is why it's so specific to each individual. Like if you have no money to spare, you know, you have student loans and what probably the majority of the United States is dealing with, it's a much harder decision to take that leap. You know, I can talk about how brave it was and no security and all that stuff. But like in reality, obviously life was pretty good. I was living with my parents. I had enough money to invest in Finch in the beginning. And you didn't have a kids or a fiance. I didn't have a kid. I was 
totally single. And so that's something that I always stress is like my individual experience allowed me to thrive in the entrepreneurship world. That is not the case for everybody through no fault of anyone individually. It's just... A hundred percent agree. Same thing with me. Like when I decided I was going to start my first business, I'm like, Austin, if you don't fucking do it now, while you don't have kids and you're single, when are you ever going to do it? Exactly. It's only going to get harder. Right. Exactly. So I, especially so if you're there now and thinking about it, keep debating like now is the time if you don't have those other responsibilities. I think it's so much harder. Like you were kind of alluding to is like if I have a family to me, that's much harder unless the other parent is bringing in home enough income to sustain both of you. But I would say the time is now. I mean, YOLO, obviously. Right. So exactly. Yeah. But the thing is, we could even tell when you worked at Unilever that you were proactive in doing this. So you have to realize, too, you have to be kind of a proactive person because no one's going to tell you exactly how to do things. You have to get up and do them. Definitely. And it's so you have to be such a self-starter. It's similar to proactive. But to not have to report to anybody. I mean, I didn't have investors for what? Until March. So that was a full year. That was a full year that I was really like, it was just on me. And it was like, I can either sit in bed and finish Grey's Anatomy, or I can go do something and you don't have to answer to anybody. And so that I think is a really hard part is like, you have to want this so badly that you're willing to get out of bed and have a schedule where you have to pretend like you're reporting to somebody. And for me, that was both, I think, intrinsic and extrinsic. There were like a lot of different factors that allowed me to be that proactive and to be a self-starter, but you can't take breaks. You have to have a good work-life balance. It would have been so easy to just chill for months and months. And that, in retrospect, was like the most important part of building the core of Finch and what it is today. Well, what kind of motivated you? Did anyone like say you couldn't do it? Or was there any external motivation for you? Yeah, you know, what was it's sort of, I'm not proud of this, but a lot of friends and family would ask me, like, how's your project going? Or they'd be like, I just saw this job listing. I wonder if that's interesting to you. Because when you don't have a website and nothing to show for Finch, people have no idea if this is just sort of like a fun side project that you're working on or what. I hate to admit this, but it's really true. That really motivated me to be like, I need to prove that this is an actual thing and that I'm not just casually maybe reading a sustainability article every day. Like I'm working so hard to be able to show people like, look at what I've built. And I remember that feeling so strongly when our website launched in December. So from March to December, just in terms of timeline, you know, we had nothing external. I had like put on LinkedIn, this is what I'm doing, but we didn't have branding or anything like that. And in December, when we launched our website, it was so nice to have something finally come to life to show, honestly, some people that I'm closest with, like, this is real. And I'm not just doing this to bide my time until someone offers me a job. Right. You know, it's whenever I'm like relaxing sometimes during the week, during the day, or my wife like sees me if I'm chilling for a little bit is because when I like to get on the computer, I like to work. I don't like to bullshit like I'm not working. It's like I need to get things done. And it's so hard to prove that when you're on computers versus like if I'm making a table, you can see that I'm actually making legs or wood carving it or what versus the thing on the computer where someone might not believe you or someone's on the work on their computer acting like they're working or really not. Like when I'm on, I'm on. And I think it's just, yeah, it can be frustrating that you just go to this screen that's all black and you turn it on and it sounds for like nine months or whatever. You're doing stuff, but you can't really prove it until something's there. And then once you have that there, maybe it just takes your motivation up to another level or feel like you at least accomplished something up to this point. Completely. Yeah. I wish I were a different type of person who didn't care what people think, because why does it matter? Like, who cares if for nine months people thought that I was being lazy and not doing anything? But I'm not. And I need to recognize that. And so it's the same thing. Like, I still these days, I'll spend three hours reviewing a contract. The only outcome of that is like a back and forth negotiation. It's nothing like physical or tangible or anything too exciting. But like, that's important stuff that really only you experience when you're the CEO of a company like this. Were you able to be efficient or is there one thing like, you know, when you're doing those nine months or do you do to-do lists every day or is there anything that you're like, hey, I want to make sure I take advantage of working hour I can? I mean, just any tips or suggestions for anyone who's kind of making that transition to doing their first company and working from home and trying to figure it out? I think one of the most important things is just to remember that this is a marathon, not a sprint, which is such an overused term. It's really important to remember that like, if this goes well, you're going to be doing this for at least right seven years until you go public or until you get acquired or something like that, at least. 
And so to work until like 11 p.m. when you don't even have a team, you don't have someone to report to, whatever, is not the best use of time. Like I really tried. I had to-do lists. I feel really strongly about typing out to-do lists every day. But I tried to have my job in the beginning be from like 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Very, very standard I'm just going to do this. Obviously, there are times when I need to work later or earlier on weekends, but having that work-life balance is what's going to sustain you. And if it means, I think I just said this earlier, but if it means taking an extra two months to accomplish something, that's worth it because in five years, those two months aren't going to matter, but you burning out and needing to take a three-week break, that's going to show up. Is that what you did early on? Burnout? Yeah, yeah. Would you work too hard? I never burned out. My old boss, Brian from Muse, had a very bad burnout situation, a couple of them. So I was able to see that firsthand and realize how difficult that is to not sleep and to... I'm just also not the type of personality. I'm never going to sustain energy for more than like 10 hours at a time. I started Finch with that experience from Muse to be like, we're not going to have a company like this. And I sometimes have employees who... In the morning when we have our stand-up, we'll be like, oh, I got two hours of sleep because I was trying to figure out this thing out. And I get angry. Like, that's not cool. It's not a badge of honor. It's not something to be proud of. That shows me that you don't manage your time well and you're inefficient. Like, I don't think this idea of, like, entrepreneurs not being able to sleep or working 20-hour days, I don't think is real. I agree. I think people actually kind of lie about how much they work a lot, honestly. But I will say, too, is, yeah, if you got four hours of sleep, we've all done it. And it's not just from work. Let's say I've, I was going out having drinks and only got four, maybe six hours of sleep. And the next day, my efficiency is nothing. When I told you earlier, like when I come to the computer, I like to be efficient, get stuff done. But I won't just stay there for eight hours and just act like I'm working because no one's efficient the whole time. I'm like, I'd much rather take 15, 30 minute break, whatever, an hour break if I need to and just relax and then come back versus, yeah, like you're saying, if someone only slept four hours, you know, everyone knows that next day. You're not nearly as efficient as if you did eight hours the day before. You're probably getting a quarter of the work done that you did the day before if you had eight hours of sleep. Exactly. Yep. All right. Well, hopefully that gives anyone some insights because, well, some Finch insights, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Let's hope. You don't like that? I thought that was good. That was good. I didn't make that up till I just saw it. I just did some insights. <laughs> I'm like, actually, that's in her company name. So that is our formal company name, Finch Insights Incorporated. There you go. Did you have any last words of wisdom for anybody who's listening now? And I guess anything in general that you'd like any entrepreneur to learn from your experiences here? No, I think you said it well. It's better now than ever. So just do it. Don't be afraid of failure. Success to me is every day I'm learning something and my employees are learning something. And beyond that, I can't ask for any other metric of success. So as long as that continues, I think we're good. And when you think of it that way, then what is there to fail? If everything blows up in a month, at least we had a really good run for two years. So I say, just go for it and take everybody's advice. And yeah, I think that's important. The main thing is that learning thing, like you said, is if you fail, at least you learn something like your first boss or boss that you had, my, my first boss, like if I learned from them. So the main thing is you got to be always learning. So I thanks for pointing that out too. And then I guess last thing, I know you said it earlier, but if anyone wanted to connect with you, ask you anything, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, of course. The best way is to email hey at choosefinch. And I'm really the only one that manages that email. So I will respond to you directly. And then, you know, DM us on Instagram or Twitter or anything and we'll respond to you. All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Lizzie. Thank you so much for having me. I know what you're thinking right now. You want more tech-based interviews, don't you? Well, if you become a Patreon member... We've got plenty of extra interviews for you right now. Just jump on over to the Patreon feed. Plus, I've got a special spreadsheet that has every interview categorized by industry. So you can easily jump to interviews that will help your business immediately. So to become a member, just check out our website, millionaire-interviews.com. And if you made it this far into the podcast and you aren't a Patreon member, well, then what's holding you back? <laughs> 